Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, David Kern here. Just wanted to let you know about our friends over at Belmont Abbey College who would like to invite all current high school students to attend its summer program, SCOLA. Students will spend a week on their beautiful North Carolina campus just outside of Charlotte, engaging in great book seminars with other young men and women from around the country. You get a chance to go whitewater rafting, hiking, and visit, of course, the city of Charlotte, in addition to all the academic things that are going on. More importantly than all that stuff, though, students will have the opportunity to build lasting friendships and have the time for reflection and prayer. Experience leisure in the best sense this summer at Belmont Abbey College's SCOLA program. For more, visit belmontabbeycollege.edu slash scola that's belmontabbeycollege.edu slash s-c-h-o-l-a all right and with that here is today's episode hello and welcome back to close reads here on the close reads podcast network i'm david kern and i'm joined by my old friends heidi white and tim mcintosh two people who are also probably secretly great whistlers Heidi, Tim, how's it going? I'm the worst whistler in the history of whistling. <laughs> I can barely do it. Really? No, really. So I'm actually just really bad at a lot of things, but I'm really <laughs> good at talking about books. And so that's like people end up thinking I'm good at life because I'm good at doing the thing that they see. But mm-hmm. whistling is an example of something that you wouldn't want my participation in like a contest about. Well, that's a shame because this podcast was going to be switching gears here pretty soon to be a whistling, a whistling, um, whistling celebration. Well, I might have something to learn in listening to that podcast, but I'm going to have to look (laughs) for another job. Tim, can you whistle? I'm not a bad whistler. Prove it. Okay. Hold on. You got me in like in a mouthful of breakfast. Can I, can I prove it once I've kind of cleansed my palate? Because one thing about being a really great whistler is... <laughs> there are you, standards, I understand. <laughs> I'm already standards. learning so much. This is so helpful. David, can you whistle? Not really. No. Mediocre, mediocrely. Uh, is mediocrely a word? Did you just adverb that word? Yeah, you <laughs> sure just... did. You just adverbed that word. <laughs> I just verbed the word adverb. So what? But what is the adverbial form of mediocre ad mediocrely yeah yeah so but so is that not a word then i mean like have, i've never that, heard it but it doesn't mean it's not a word so then when someone wants to say mediocrely normally what's you? the word they normally use that i use moderately average. is not the right word average poorly yeah. poorly yeah. is too too harsh i think yeah i agree that's that's below mediocre Wait, you guys i hate to say this we're off the rails that's true this is man we have just started out with a bang i feel like we're doing a whole we're holding right here well we're probably revealing us we're probably revealing ourselves more than we think you mean because we're like we're subtly revealing things about our personal yeah and our the the state of our souls probably yeah if our souls are modified by adverbs i think we're in as a writer I have to say, 
we're in big trouble. Are you ready to whistle yet? <laughs> I am. Okay. <laughs> Heidi, was that your attempt to kind of like change the subject from the ad, the advert? Uh, the only it. people still listening it. to this podcast three minutes in are people who are longtime listeners. That's, That's so true. That is for Both sure. of them. I Both know. of those long-term listeners yeah, are still listening. <laughs> and we know Jesse's one of them just because she really it's wants so us to talk yeah, about this yeah, book. Yeah. So. Are you going to whistle or should we move on? Because it was... Oh. Wow. I am impressed. I can't above, do that. That was above mediocrely. Well, <laughs> also speaking above mediocrely, we are here to talk about a book that is above mediocrely. We are... Uh, here to talk about The Catcher in the Rye. We're going to talk chapters 10 through 17. But before we do that, of course, I need to go through the spiel because there are ways that you can check in, ways that you can communicate, ways that you can participate in the conversation. Of course, on social media, you can follow along at Close Reads Pods is our handle on Twitter and on Instagram. And on Facebook, you can join the conversation in the Close Reads Facebook group. Just type in the words Close Reads in the search bar if you've not already done so. And we will click the join button and you can join the conversation. There has been plenty of conversation on this book as usual. You can also email us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. And there is also the Patreon page where you can support the show and then get that sweet show swag and then listen to the Crime and Punishment episodes, which we are doing uh, every other week. Uh, we have two episodes on that so far. Uh, so we are through part one. And if you want to participate in that, support the show, get that swag and listen to those episodes, you can go to patreon.com slash close reads. All right. With that, let's talk about Catcher in the Rye, chapters 10 through 17. And there's a few things we talked about offline wanting to chat about. Heidi, one of the things that you mentioned was the hat. And I want to get to that, the hat that he keeps putting on and the hats keep popping up. He, he, refle- he, he comments on on the uses of hats at a couple different portions throughout this book. But there's a, there's a phrase that he keeps dropping or that our narrator that Holden keeps dropping as he's telling his story. And I wanted to uh, get some clarity, I guess, on it, get your opinions on, on why he keeps speaking the way he does. And the phrase is, he keeps saying, I'm not kidding. So he'll be saying, describing somebody or saying some, you know, explaining some scenario or, something like that. And then he'll drop a, I'm not kidding in there. And I was wondering why you think that phrase is so prevalent. I think in one chapter, I found it five or six times. And if I was truly industrious, I would go back and find, you know, count every single time that it shows up in the book. But suffice it to say, there are many times that it shows up. Heidi, um, why do you think that this phrase, and I'll just say this, phrases like it show up so commonly in this book? Right. I I think one small purpose it serves is to keep the colloquial kind of feeling to the book, but I think you're right that there's more to it than just that. A lot of times he says it in a conversation when he's trying to get the other person to believe him and it draws attention to the fact that the person might not believe him. And then there's other times. Can I, can, oh, I clarif- can I ask a clarif- clarifying question? Are, do you mean like he's talking with another character in the book, or he's talking to us as the audience, and he's not? He doesn't. He doesn't seem to. He wants right. to ensure that we, as the audience, believe him. Well, it's both. But I was talking specifically about the conversations. Uh, he does it 
often, as you're pointing out, it does, it recurs and it recurs when he's, I think when he's afraid he won't be believed either in conversation with another character or when he's talking to us as the reader. Um, And then it also happens when he's being kind of funny uh, or the, the, his interlocutor could take it as funny. And then he, and he really wants us to take what he's saying very seriously. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you, when I first read this book, I remember thinking that it seemed um, as if he wasn't sure what to believe about himself, I guess, you know, like he's almost trying to convince himself. I, I mean, do you think there's anything to that? Oh, I think that's really insightful because I don't, I, as we talked about in the last episode, Holden doesn't seem to know himself very much at all. He thinks about himself. He's obsessed with himself, like all adolescents are and probably all humans are, but he doesn't really know himself. And so I think you're bringing up a really good point that when he says that, it's almost like he's flagging something or tagging something in his own mind that he recognizes as significant um, Hmm. and is inviting other people to take seriously. And I think we all do that. Hmm. Tim, I was thinking a lot about how he speaks very imprecisely. And I think you even mentioned this last week. He says things like always. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Like, like teenagers tend to do. Um, and, And so I was wondering if, do you, do you think this is tied to that same concept? Like he says, I'm not kidding. In the same way he says he uses, you know, hyperbole in his speech. Yeah. And I often think he says, I'm not kidding to kind of back up the higher per- the hyperbole. I was just looking for an example. And I didn't, I didn't find one in my brief search, but he'll often say something like, um, she was always talking about Cadillacs. I'm not kidding. Always. And, and I think it is just sort of like reinforcing it, it, in a way I'm going to say the same thing that Heidi said. It's just sort of like reinforcing his kind of like vision of the world, even though sometimes it's appears kind of outlandish to us. Like really, she's always talking about Cadillacs. I'm not kidding. She's always talking about Cadillacs. But I think, I mean, I didn't read too much into it because I think the primary purpose you guys said this is, it's a habit of speech. I still say like way too often. I've tried to purge myself of the use of that word. And I still say like a lot. And I think oftentimes that's what's going on for him. He's just got these really, he has like a, <laughs> a very repetitive vocabulary and he's got verbal tics. And this is one of them that shows up a lot. Mm. So, on page one eleven, there's an example. In one paragraph, there's two. So this is if I don't. I guess I should not say the page number. Um, it's not precise enough. But in page in chapter twelve, this is after he'd been with the cab driver, and they uh, they have the conversation about the the ducks, which I want to talk about. But there's a paragraph that begins, "I was surrounded by jerks." Yeah, I was surrounded by jerks. I'm not kidding. At this other tiny table right to my left, practically on top of me, there was this funny looking guy and this funny looking girl. And then later on down there, he, he says, um, 
he, he's, uh, he's, he says he was telling her about some pro football game he'd seen that afternoon. He gave her every single play in the whole game. I'm not kidding. Um, he was the most boring guy I ever listened to. So I was thinking on the one hand, yeah, you're right. It, it seems like he's reinforcing or backing up his hyperbole. You know, so he speaks in an extreme, then realizes people aren't really going to believe him. And then he says, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Um, but is, I mean, is he kidding? Like, is he, when he says, I'm not kidding, right? Is he actually not kidding? Or, and I mean, we can use, we have to, I guess, use the word kidding loosely, but he seems to be using it as well. Um, because um, there's two different examples of how he uses this phrase here. I was surrounded by jerks. I'm not kidding. Like you could believe that, right? Yeah. That's not really hyperbole, although it might be. But then, then the other one, he gave her every single play in the whole game. I'm not kidding. That's hyperbole. The guy's not really going to get every play, most likely. Um, but that's a lot of plays. So is he... I mean, is he actually... Is he trying to use language imprecisely on purpose? Or is it just the verbal tick you're talking about there? Or does he recognize something in, in, in his own story that needs to be, you know, reinforced? Bolstered. Yeah. Right. Well, and I think that belongs in the meta narrative question too. What is mm-hmm. what is Salinger doing with that phrase? Uh, because, like you said, he couldn't. Every time he says, "I'm not kidding," he almost every time he's using it, he's exaggerating. He is, yeah. and but what he's saying is dwelling in that subtext, which is please pay attention to how whatever. And usually it's connected to something that's produced some kind of feeling of disgust in him. Right. So that's, I'm not kidding. What he's saying is even though he may not have told her every play in the game, what I really want you to pay attention to is how annoyed I was by this guy or how depressed I was. Cause he keeps using that word over and over again, how everything is so depressing to him. And Um, and I think that subtext is what's kind of dwelling within that phrase. If you look at it from that meta narrative perspective. So he wants people to have, find some value in what he's saying, like not just dismiss it. Yeah. I think that that's probably true. And I think Tim's right. It is a verbal tick, but those verbal ticks you know, a lot of time well, have, part of character, right. They're purposeful either because as Tim said, you used the like, like that was how we all grew up as Gen X or saying like every other, every other word. And, um, it's hard to shed as an adult trying to speak articulately and not mediocrely. Um, and, <laughs> um, but is it mediocrity? That's not, that's not right. No, that's a, that's a noun. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Mediocrity. That can't be right either. It's <laughs> mediocrely. You're exactly right. Um, so, but with Holden, I think there's so much subtext going on. There's so much he's, he is revealing that Salinger is inviting us to see about him. And so to your point, David, of, of drawing attention to those repeated phrases, what would be the craft purpose of that? And I think a lot of it is look underneath what I'm saying. Mm. What am I actually trying to communicate? It isn't that the guy says the entire game. It's that I'm frustrated. I'm depressed. I'm annoyed. I don't know what to do. Whatever. I'm lost. Yeah. Yeah. This is not a joke. Right. Yes. It almost seems like 
the repetitive nature of them start to add up together. So in, in any individual scene, it, it could be that he's saying, hear what I'm saying in the scene, what I'm describing was real. But when you add them all together, it's as if he's saying, this story that I'm telling is not a joke, you know? Right. And you don't, it doesn't even need to be true for it not to be a joke, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like the story cannot, yeah, be, well cannot be a yeah. joke, even if it's not tr- totally true, even if his recollections are, you know, imprecise or, or maybe a little bit um, bolstered by some, his imagination, so to speak. Do you, do you read um, a passage like this, this one, which I think is an important one, the, the, the whole kind of, he's with the, the cabbie and then he ends up at the hotel and everything. Do you read these passages? What tone of voice do you read them in? Tim, how, like in your head when you're reading it, what is Holden's voice like? Slightly exasperated. You mean the specific section that you just highlighted? Or well, do you mean kind that of the as whole example. voice? I guess the whole voice, but I'm just thinking, you know, these are great examples of, of the, where things are actually happening, you know? Because uh, as opposed to him sort of just walking around, you know, he's actually interacting yeah. with people. And I, yeah. I guess I'm thinking a lot about how, well, okay. So he I, slightly exasperated is a, is a good answer. Heidi, how do you read them? Yeah, I would. That's a good answer. I'm going to, I'm going to say, I agree because I want to get the right answer. <laughs> um, it's better actually if you don't agree for what I'm about. <laughs> um, for what you're about to say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that that's the tone in which he's saying it. Mm-hmm. Yes. But I, like we keep saying, there's so much underneath the tone in which he's saying it. So now say what you're about to say. Well, I don't know. I was just thinking that while I was reading I'll, that you could, you could put, you could do, say this is a play or you're making it into a, a movie or something like that. Your line readings could, could vary so dr- dramatically depending on how you want to think about Holden because on the one hand you could ha- make him very cynical which seems to be the sort of commonplace way of thinking about him right and so you could read everything with a sort of sarcastic edge um and that's but that's that's a very different experience and it makes him into a sort of different character than if he's exasperated and the line readings come out sad right and so i was kind of in my head as i was going i was reading scenes in both ways to see how they played out. And so I was wondering which is the right way to, to think of him. Is he a sort of, is he, and, and I think also like it depends on who he, who you think he's talking to, like mm. the conceit of the book, who do you think he's talking to is going to have impact how you think about that, which I think is one of the marks of that this book has some, you know, Salinger has some talent because it can be read and both those voices actually could be defended by the text. Mm-hmm. So, do you think of him as being sort of sar- sarcastic, or do you think of him as being more sad? It sounds like sad, both of you. I think Holden is profoundly sad. I I think also that 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 he carries himself, in my imagination at least, with a kind of desperate bravado that would lend itself to what Tim said about the the slight exaggeration. Uh, exasperation in his tone it is kind of the um, the the mask that he puts on that the bravado is 
you know, projecting out Mm. through kind of a slight exasperation. But I think underneath that, he is, he's an idealist. So I, he's, he is sad. He, he might be becoming cynical. That's what I think the book is about, Mm. but he is very idealistic and has nowhere to put his ideals. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Oh man, I agree with that so strongly. And, and, and I think what's that great saying? Every cynic is an idealist with a broken heart. Yeah. I mean, I think that's who Holden is. And, and I think like the section that you highlighted, David, I was surrounded by jerks. I'm not kidding. Is sort of a bid by Holden to get us to have sympathy with him. And he has so much sympathy in this book for people that probably ordinarily don't get the sort of sympathy in the phony culture that he is decrying. I mean, I just kind of want to read this section, at least part of it. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was surrounded by jerks. I'm not kidding. At this other tiny table, right to my left, practically on top of me, there's this funny-looking guy and this funny-looking girl. They're around my age or maybe just a little older. It was funny. You could see they were being careful as hell not to drink up the minimum too fast. I listened to their conversation for a while because I didn't have anything else to do. He was telling her about some pro football game that he'd seen that afternoon. He gave her every single GD play in the whole game. I'm not kidding. He was the most boring guy I ever listened to. And you tell his date wasn't even interested in the GD game because she was even funnier looking than he was. So I guess she had to listen. Real ugly girls have it tough. I feel so sorry for them sometimes. Sometimes I can't even look at them, especially when there was some dopey guy that's telling them all about the GD football game. On my right, the conversation was even worse, though. On my right, there was this very Joe Yale-looking guy in a gray flannel suit and one of those flitty-looking Tattersall vests. All those Ivy League bastards look alike. My father wants me to go to Yale or maybe Princeton, but I swear, I wouldn't go to one of those Ivy League colleges if I was dying, for God's sake. Anyway, this Joe Yale-looking guy had this terrific-looking girl with him. Boy, was she good-looking. But you should have heard the conversation they were having. In the first place, they were both slightly crocked. What he was doing, he was giving her... Okay, I'll stop there for um, our listening audience. I feel like he's constantly trying to enlist us to have sympathy with his view of the world. And he's constantly operating from this place of a deficit. Like everybody around him has got a date, even the funny looking people, at least they've got each other. Well, you know, well, yeah, I mean, you didn't keep going probably maybe for good reason, but the, the final line of this paragraph going into the first sentence of, well, the final sentence of this, paragraph that you're reading and then the first sentence of the next paragraph i think in some ways present a sort of dualism or problem that is the sort of core of the whole book because it says so the um this couple is being like you know a little handsy right (laughs) under the table and he says so holden says um so the girl is basically telling the guy stop and he says imagine giving somebody a feel and telling them about a guy committing suicide at the same time they killed me and then the first sentence of the next one says, I certainly began to feel like a prize horse's ass though sitting there all by myself. And mm-hmm. so I think that that sort of 
dichotomy that, that he presents there that he's reflecting on is the core of the book in a lot of ways, because he's looking at these people who they don't really, people don't, he, he's recognizing that most people don't really know how to interact with each other. And that there's a sort of like, everyone's kind of trying to um, deflect their own loneliness and figure out how to interact with one another. And it's like kind of impossible to, to do it in a way that makes any sense and doesn't leave you feeling, you know, more confused. But then yeah. that's in some ways better than just sitting there by yourself watching everybody else. Um, and that's how he feels all the time. You know, you look at the scene later on, later on in the section with uh, Sally, right? And he, the, he's, he is having the kind of conversations over and over with her that he makes fun of people, calls people phonies for having. But then it's better than, you know, being alone. And so navigating yeah. how to have a relationship or be in a relationship and have a conversation with someone in a way that it doesn't make you feel miserable is is the problem. It's the trouble, right? Yeah. And so that's very easy to fall into a sort of cynicism when that's what you keep running up against. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that this book hits the hardest. And I mean that in a good way. When you acknowledge that Holden's complaints about the world are actually true and justified. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, hmm. like it's, it's easy for us to recognize that he's an adolescent and he's, uh, he's just a boy. He doesn't really get it. And he has this, you know, he's soup. He, he lacks the self-confidence that would, you know, free him to have sympathy with other people, even like this Joe Yale looking guy. Yeah. But I, I think part of the reason that I appreciate this book so much is because his complaints about the world are, are not just adolescent complaints. I think they're like, in a lot of ways, they're valid. Yeah. They're valid yeah. complaints. That's why this is a and book they, for adults, not for kids. Amen. Exactly right. Exactly right. And I think if you, I think it's easy to dismiss his complaints because part of living in this world is just kind of getting used to how phony the world is. Like just to like, go about your business. You have to get used to how phony the world is. You have to get used to how phony you are. Mm. And it just becomes kind of like part of the furniture of doing life. Mm. But this book really puts in stark relief how much of human interaction is sort of play acting sincere so that we can get what we want from each other. And here's Holden, who's not yet accepted this fact. And it's just killing him. Because all he can do is see it everywhere, but he hasn't really equipped himself. He hasn't kind of like dulled his senses enough yet to be able to overlook it and just kind of get with the program. And at the same time, he's trying to figure out how do you... Like once you've recognized that, how do you also deal with like, like trauma? You know, how do you deal with, right. with the grief right, that he's yeah. gone through? How do you figure out how to exist in a world where, where you start when you're just at the time when you're starting to realize that everybody else is screwed up true and, and you're all trying to figure out how to get, navigate that, you know? Yeah. How do you, he's got his, he's lost his brother. He clearly, this is like a massive episode for him. And it doesn't seem like he's really 
it doesn't really seem like he's dealt with that yet. In some ways he's like dealt with it enough that he can acknowledge it and he can tell it in a story, but he's still struggling to, to make sense of that. And he's thrown out in the world, trying to trying to like deal with all these phonies. Hmm. <laughs> Heidi, you were going to say something. You, you were, you muted your line and then you unmuted it a couple of times, which I took to be the signal for uh, raising your hand. <laughs> I, I always have something to say. Um, but that was probably more of a signal that I was coughing and drinking tea and didn't want to be annoying. Oh, okay. Fair <laughs> but, enough. Um, but I do have, I, I, I really like that we are on the podcast focusing on Holden as a character, like who he is and what motivates him because, you know, there's, there's the two kinds of novels. There's the character-driven novel and the plot-driven novel. And and this is entirely a character-driven novel. And if you try to f- make it a plot-driven novel, it, 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 it's harder to see it that way. And it falls apart a little bit more easily. Now, that isn't to say it's not tightly structured. It absolutely is like super tightly structured. Everything's purposeful. Everything is in a sequence. And maybe we can talk about that at some point. Uh, it's a very literary novel, but it it's not, you know, like Peace Like a River was a plot-driven novel that had very rich characters. This is a character-driven novel that has a, a plot, uh, sort of that's going somewhere right yeah. and and it has I know things that also, happen yes we're also later reading death comes from the archbishop comes for the archbishop which is a very episodic kind of novel and it's hard to find any plot at all and so there's all these different ways to write a great novel and but what i like about these conversations is i think we're going to the right place um instead of just talking about the next thing that happens to holden or the next thing he goes and does we are talking about who he is and what motivates him and uh, and and how these things are that feel so disconnected to him are all part of this internal narrative of him attempting to live in a world that feels foreign to him with all of this heavy burden of of trauma things that have happened to him and things that he's created on his own because he's a very foolish young man and so i i th- I think that for the readers who are really struggling with kind of the sordid nature of this, I think that we are on this podcast talking about the things that are really going on, which is about the internal world of this very troubled young man. Hmm. Can can we... Um, I want to look at a scene where it feels like he's trying to do what you're describing. Um, can we go at the beginning of chapter 12? Mm-hmm. Because this is the, the scene with the cabbie, which yes. sort of flies by, uh, no pun intended, given the thing <laughs> you're talking about. But um, I, I want to read this. And I actually, I think I want to read the scene and then talk about it. So um, you why, two should read it. I think it needs, I think you two should read it. I know you're about to assign something to me and I'm not trying to get out of it, but it's, <laughs> okay. a, it's a very masculine kind of scene. Tim, so. you want to be the cabbie then? And I'll be, I'll just read it and then do Holden. Yeah. How are you sure you don't want to play old Horowitz? I I mean, I I can I can be old Horowitz, but I definitely think you should. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll do that then and then you can be and then you can uh, comment on it. You can offer the director's <laughs> the director's commentary. Okay, so um beginning of twelve. I'll read the little paragraph there. The cab I had was a real old one that smelled like someone just tossed his cookies in it. 
I always get those vomity kind of cabs if I go anywhere late at night. What made it worse, it was so quiet and lonesome out, even though it was Saturday night. I didn't see hardly anybody on the street. Now and then you just saw a man and a girl crossing a street with their arms around each other's waists and all, or a bunch of hoodlummy looking guys and their dates, all of them laughing like hyenas at something you could bet wasn't funny. New York's terrible when somebody laughs on the street very late at night. You can hear it for miles. It makes you feel so lonesome and depressed. I kept wishing I could go home and shoot the bull for a while with old Phoebe. But finally, after I was riding a while, the cab driver and I sort of struck up a conversation. His name was Horwitz. I was a much better, he was a much better guy than the other driver I'd had. Anyway, I thought maybe he'd know about the ducks. Hey, Horwitz, I said, you ever pass by the lagoon in Central Park, down by Central Park South? The what? The lagoon, that little lake, like right there, where where the ducks are, you know. Yeah, what about it? Well, you know the ducks that swim around in it in the springtime and all? You happen to know where they go in the wintertime by any chance? Where who goes? The ducks, do you know by any chance? I mean, does somebody come around in a truck or something and take them away, or do they fly away by themselves, go south or something? Old Horowitz turned all the way around and looked at me. He was a very impatient type guy. He wasn't a bad guy, though. How the hell should I know? How the hell should I know a stupid thing like that? Don't get sore about it. He was sore about it or something. Who's sore? Nobody's sore. I stopped having a conversation with him. He was going to get so touchy about it. But he started it up again himself. He turned all the way around again and said, The fish don't go no place. They stay right where they are, the fish. Right in the GD Lake. The fish, that's different. The fish is different. I'm talking about the ducks. What's different about it? Nothing's different about it. Everything he said, he sounded sore about something. It's tougher for the fish, the winner and all, than it is for the ducks for... We didn't come up with it. For the ducks, for goodness sake. They're a nice Southern colloquialism. Use your head, for goodness sake. I didn't think about anything for a minute. Then I said... All right. What do they do? The fish and all. When that whole lake's a solid block of ice, people skating on it and all. Old Horowitz turned around again. What the hell you mean what they do? They stay right where they are, for goodness sake. They can't just ignore the ice. They can't just ignore it. Who's ignoring it? Nobody's ignoring it. <laughs> God, I just think this scene is funny. I'm sorry. <laughs> it is funny. Got, it is. It's really funny. <laughs> he got so excited and all. I was afraid he's going to drive the cab right into a lamppost or something. They live right in the GD ice. It's their nature, for goodness sake. They get frozen in one position for the whole winter. Yeah. What do they eat then? I mean, if they're frozen solid, they can't swim looking around for food and all. Their bodies, for goodness sake, what's the matter with you? Their bodies taking nutrition and all right through the seaweed and crap that's in the ice. They got their pores <laughs> open the whole time. It's their nature, for goodness sake. You see what I mean? <laughs> turned, I'm sorry. He turned away the hell around again to look at me. Oh. I let it drop. I was afraid he was going to crack the taxi up or something. Besides, he was such a touchy guy. It wasn't any pleasure discussing anything with him. <laughs> Would you care to stop off and have a drink with me somewhere? He didn't answer me, though. That's I the funniest he, paragraph I in know, the whole thing. It's so great. <laughs> he didn't answer me, though. I guess he was still thinking. I asked him again, though. He was a pretty good guy, quite amusing and all. I got time for no liquor, bud. How the hell old are you anyways? Why'd you home in bed? 
I'm not tired. When I got out in front of Ernie's and paid the fare, old Horowitz brought up the fish again. He certainly had it on his mind. Listen, if you was a fish, Mother Nature would take care of you, wouldn't she? Right? You don't think them fish just die when it gets to be winter, do you? No. You GD, right? They don't. And he drove off like a bat out of hell. He was about the touchiest guy I ever met. Everything you said made him sore. (laughs) We can stop there. (laughs) So it's both. I think one of the great things about this book is the way it can be so sad and funny at the same time, which is true of many great pieces of comedy. Right. Um, You look at a lot of the great mid-century comedic movies and plays are a lot of the funniest scenes are also the, the saddest scenes or the funniest lines come in the saddest scenes or vice versa. And the, I, so there's a couple lines here that stand out to me in particular. One is where he says to him, how should I know a stupid thing like that? Hmm. And it feels, you know, that feels like one of those things that he's probably being been said, had said to him a lot. Hmm. <laughs> how should I know yeah. a stupid thing like that? But then there's the end part where Horowitz says to him, he asks him, you don't think them fish just die when it gets to winter, do you? And it's almost like it all flips around and he starts, Horwitz starts questioning his own sort of view of existence. And, and then all he waits, he Holden says, no, but, and there's that dash there to suggest he keeps talking. And Horwitz says, you're right. They don't. And then he drives off because he doesn't really want to hear the the truth. If he doesn't want to hear what comes after the, but, Mm -hmm. um, and, do you think in this scene, you know, who in this scene is, I was going to say the wisest one. (laughs) I don't, Mm. I don't really know if that's the right way of putting it, but you know, Horowitz starts talking about nature and Mm. Holden's trying to figure out, well, let me actually, let me take a step back here. Why is he so obsessed with the ducks? Let's, let's talk about that first. Mm Mm-hmm. Why, why is Holden? Why is why is Holden? He because remember this is not the first time he's asked someone about it. Yeah, he it's the, wants it's to know what happens to the ducks when it gets cold out. Well, you said earlier you want to talk about the hat. I think the ducks and the hat are a very similar conversation. When we're talking about peace like a river, we're talking about things that aren't symbols. But in Catcher in the Rye, you have some very very important symbols, something within the world of the novel that carries like a very great weight of meaning. And I think the ducks are one of those things. And the ducks I to Holden are uh, this, Holden's always trying to care for people. Uh, he's, he wants, he doesn't want people to be hurt and wounded. And I think that's a projection of himself onto all the people around him right? Nobody's caring for him. And he wants to, and he knows that and recognizes that suffering in himself, but, and he wants to shield other people from feeling like that. And he wants to shield the ducks from feeling like that, right? Like they are these, these ducks and nobody's helping them in the winter. And he wants to know that they're cared for. He wants to know that somebody is paying attention to these ducks. And I think that's a projection of his own very profound feelings of, of isolation and loneliness uh, and, and a lack of care towards him and how he projects that on the people around him. And then by extension, even the ducks. And I think that the ducks are very symbolic of that 
of, of his own loneliness and his own fear for the state of the world and of other people. Do you think Holden feels hunted? That's a good question. I've wondered about that because it's a hunting cap and the ducks. Yeah. And I was thinking how as a, a little kid might think, okay, so there's all these ducks when, if they have to fly South, then they might become. Then they're in danger. They, they're in danger of being hunted. But then he if puts they on the stay. Right, but they're the, in danger of freezing to death. Right, but then he puts on the hunting cap, which puts him. He doesn't have the gun, but ostensibly it puts him on the other side of the sort of food chain, if you will. Exactly from the ducks. So he's got all this concern for them. But on the but then on the other hand, it almost could be like if he puts the hunting cap on. It's as if he's saying, okay, I need to know how do I get access to the ducks so I can trap them? Like, where do they go? Like, there's almost a predatory reading that you could have in his question of where do the ducks go? Like, maybe... Right. I mean, I'm not saying that's, that's exactly how it feels or how he's thinking, but that is... I think that, that there is something of an implication there through the symbol of the hat, that the concept of, you know, a predatory relationship between he and the ducks is certainly, is certainly there. It's suggesting. I hadn't, I hadn't even thought of that, David, but I think that that works. Um, because I think that the ducks are symbolic for his kind of misplaced care that, that ends up being like completely powerless. Like he can't ever do anything to help the ducks and he can't do anything to help anybody around him. And, and the thing that he's actually wants is to be cared for himself. And then the hunting cap, I think is very symbolic of his, his innocence, like his, and, and his, and his feelings of being alienated from people around him because nobody wears hunting caps and he's weird, (laughs) Um, but he wants to wear it. And so I, there's these two symbols that are connected and the predatory piece was not something I had thought of as him being destructive as well as, um, you know, being in danger. Well, I, but that I, works. I mean, I might be, maybe it's reading into it too much, but I do think that he is sort of the nature of his character in this book is that he's sort of always towing a line between predator and, and prey. Um, prey. Mm. That's true. Um, and that, that's sort of part of what he's trying to navigate and figure it out. But, but you know, who's that not true of for who right. is that not true? I suppose. Um, but that, that, that line that the, uh, the, the reality of that line is, something that you know people have to everybody has to learn to kind of to navigate that but some people are more aware of it than others i guess <laughs> hmm. the hunting cat i haven't i haven't finished the book yet on this read through so i'm reluctant to say man i really think the hunting camp is about this that being said i do think that the hunting cap any hunting cap kind of serves two purposes you put it on in front of your friends who are hunting and it's a signal we're going hunting, but the the purpose of it is to signal. um, It's to show oneself in the woods so that one doesn't get shot by one's friends. And so I think it does have this kind of like dual meaning just in the artifact of any hunting cap. It's a signal that I'm going hunting and it's also a signal for, self-preservation which just seems so perfect for holding hmm. yeah it's like because he is i think you're right david he's he's he is a predator and he's also 
constantly like in danger of being prey himself. Well, then that, okay. So that doesn't, that's not far thematically from the following scene with the prostitute. Right. He's exactly. in the hotel room. Yeah. And, you know, he sort of, he sort of, you know, he talks about the quote perverts that are essentially on the prowl, right. Or, or that are, you know, trying to, f- they're either on the prowl because they're trying to find people to sell their prostitutes to, or they're people who are looking for prostitutes, right? And it's late at night and all that, you know, four in the morning or whatever it is. But then you have the scene where he's in the room and the guy sells the, the prostitute, more was it Maurice sells the prostitute to him? And then she comes upstairs and, you know, the, the relationship is sort of, he's the predator, she's the prey type of thing. But then that ends up flipping on its head because he tries, yeah. because he tries to, you know, have a conversation with her, treat her like a human being instead of like an animal. And then in the, in the process of making that choice, the order flips and he becomes the prey and Maurice becomes Maurice and, and, and her become the predator. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, it, you know, that, and that's sort of a, that is sort of a cynical moment, right? Where he tries to treat her like a human being and have a conversation. And what and, does he get? And what he gets is, you know, he feel he gets the feeling that he's dying, right? That he can't right. catch his mm-hmm. breath. Yeah. Right. Well, and it's I mean, one thing we've probably all heard, but especially people in in the business, that's what we call counseling. You know, we call it the business. Um, I was like, no, the po- the like literature calls it that. Yes. The literature <laughs> podcast business. Yeah. I mean, we also call that the business too. Um I that, feel like in counseling, yeah. it would be like if someone came to you and was talking about like giving someone the business, that would be like the wrong. I know I'd have questions, (laughs) but, um, the, or the time, right. Um, yeah. yeah. The, I mean, it's, well, to be fair, your job is to have questions. (laughs) Right. So true. But it's one of the foundational principles of human interaction that wounded people wound people, right? Like hurt people, hurt people. So that's, that's why you hear about an abuser in the first, you know, the joke is tell me about your mother, right? Like that's, that's a joke, Mm. but there's something very true about that, that there's like Holden is a very wounded person and he lashes out at others and wounds them over and over again in this book, even in his attempt to connect with them. And who doesn't relate to that? Mm. Right. Mm. Like whether, even if you're not a traumatized human being like Holden is, even if you just live an ordinary life, how many times do like you had a long day at work and you get home and you snap at the person who's trying to, who asked you about your day, you know, like that's, that's just the way we are Mm -hmm. (laughs) when we are hurting and we want people to love us. We, unless we're really trying hard, a lot of times we hurt the people that we should be caring for and who are trying to care for us. And that, that that is explored very deeply in this book, which goes, I think, to back to these symbols that we're talking about with the ducks and the hunting cap. And I really like David what you said, and I hadn't even put that together. The predator and the prey. He's both, and that's what's explored throughout the novel. And he's he cares so much about the prey, right? And he wants other people to care about it, which I think really fits that symbolic image. He's constantly trying to get other people to care about these ducks and they don't, they don't care the same way he wants people to care about him and they don't Mm -hmm. in the same way that all those other people that he's calling phonies and are judging are just as wounded as he is and he hurts them Mm -hmm. and he can't see it. 
Well, the last line of chapter 12, last sentence, people are always ruining things for you. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) They train lifeguards to, like your first job as a lifeguard, if you see someone drowning, drowning with a D, (laughs) drowning, (laughs) is you have to make sure that the drowning person doesn't pull you under. You know, they're in a state of terror. And so the lifeguard swims up splash them in the face and you have to make sure that they don't grab if they are in a in a place where they're not capable of kind of recognizing what's going on for them then you got to make sure that you don't drown yourself you know get pulled under and boy i just think that (laughs) whether or not holden is the lifeguard or the drowning person it depends on like where the second hand is on the clock. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Is that because, do you think that, is that because of circumstances around him or because he doesn't fully know himself? He doesn't necessarily know exactly what code to live by yet, so to speak. And so he is suspect to whims and suspect to, you know, his emotions changing every minute or is it because the circumstances keep changing and thus his responses to them? Are necessarily different. I don't know if that question makes sense. It does. I wonder if there's, I wonder if, so does he not have a code was one option, right, David? Yeah, or he maybe is just it, doesn't, he doesn't fully know what it is yet. So he's, you know, yeah. indecisive about it or not committed to it or, you know, for, you know, forgets about it, say. It's phony. Yeah. And the other option is, I just think it's interesting. The other option is, or is it the circumstances around him? You know, it, it's in a way, it's is the problem internal to Holden? Is the problem external to Holden? And I think, not to take us too far afield, I mean, this is there's a big split in like the cultural world that we inhabit about where the problem of human nature lies. Is the problem? you know, i.e. Marxism, is it the kind of like social world that we live in, born of inequalities and greed? You know, it's external to us. Or maybe a more conservative answer would be, no, the problem is internal to us. We have the capacity to um, live a life of robust virtue if we can harmonize our souls and, you know, prepare ourselves to meet the trials that are outside of ourselves. I think Holden's, (laughs) I think that the way that people would answer Holden's question, the kind of question that Holden puts to us, um, it might kind of give away your kind of vision of what the primary problem in the world is. (laughs) Yeah. It becomes a mirror for our own preconceptions, right? Yeah. It's like a Rorsch inkblot test. Well, doesn't it take us back to what the Horowitz was saying though about the nature of fish? Mm. (laughs) That's good, David. Yep. No, that's really good. Go on. Well, I don't know. It was a question. (laughs) Doesn't it? So Horowitz Horowitz thinks just to make sure we're talking about the same thing that their pores are open fish their pores are open and they're absorbing the nutrients from the seaweed and the water and stuff and boy is he certain about it he sure is at least in his expression 
And so, so tie this together, David. I know, it's so, like a really like Tim's valiant <laughs> events to not make David say what he meant. I didn't mean anything. It was, a, I, I asked a question. I mean, you just, can you, you t- what are the premises of your question? That's fair. Yeah. Well, for one, he says that's their nature. And you were talking about like how you understand the nature of things. And so, you know, Horowitz is here is he's trying to, he's basically trying to uh, concoct or, you know, express an opinion on this situation, which, which was troubling Holden now seems to be troubling Horowitz. And he's trying to give an answer to it according to what he seems to think is the nature of things. Right. Or, and if he doesn't know that it's the nature of things, he's trying to, he's trying to come up with, you know, something that's going to offer some solace to something that's perplexing. Like that's going to offer uh-huh. an answer to a perplexing, perplexing problem. So he necessarily, as you're saying, he turns to the nature of things, right? Mm-hmm. His, his gut reaction to a perplexing problem is to say, well, there is a way that things work. You know, there's a, there's a natural order of things. In this case, it's that fish, even though everything's frozen under there, which is fun science, then they, you know, their pores are open and they just ingest food because even without knowing it, without, without the choice right. of it. Right. And there's a sort of like, a, um, uh, it makes mother nature a sort of, uh, well, obviously, you know, mother, as it's he a said, caring, mother nature is yeah, a caring force. She's very, uh, very, uh, kind and she protects her own. And, you know, it's not a sort of, it's, a, it's a kind of, it's definitely not a nihilistic way of looking at the, the, the functions of the universe. <laughs> Uh, and, but it seems to me he's trying, you know, it's, he immediately turns to that as a way of solving a perplexing problem. So right. yeah. the puzzle gets put before him, even if Holden doesn't mean it as a puzzle, he means it as I, he generally is trying to understand because he has empathy. And Horowitz first says, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But then right. the next thing you know, uh-huh. he's offering this outlandish, outlandish solution. <laughs> Side note, I didn't know that fish had pores. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I just think it's interesting that that's, that's his go-to response is to, like many people's, is to identify, you know, what's the natural order of things that's, that's going to solve yeah. this problem. Well, and yeah. to angrily defend that that natural order is benevolent in some way. And, and I think that's exactly what Holden's struggling with. That's the underlying question is, is there any benevolence, anything that's looking out for me? Anything right, that right, isn't yeah. going to let yeah. me drown under the ice. And, and the, the cabbie, you know, whenever someone angrily defends something, it's usually because they doubt it. Mm. Well, that's, and we've so, seen that with Holden. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that's what, you know, I think Holden, this, this little, this little interchange, and this is, I think what, this is exactly what I meant that this, no matter how rambling this novel seems, it is extremely tightly constructed. It's very brilliantly written. There's, there's so much going on on a philosophical and a literary sense, even though it just seems like the rambling, the inner turmoil of some random kid. And, and this little exchange, I'm so glad you pointed it out because it does, as you said, kind of flies by you. But if you're digging into it and reading it closely, it's asking some of the primary questions of the book and and Holden has gotten under this guy's skin and uh because this guy is just as lonely and disconnected he's driving a cab around in the middle of the night in the lonesome and depressing city of New York and and so he's and and he angrily defends 
this idea that mother nature is looking out for the fish so much so that he makes up this wild story that's totally untrue and the fish do die under the ice. And so that, and, and hold, and then he cuts Holden off when Holden, he says, no, but and he's like, I'm, he's refusing to have this conversation. He's refusing to wrestle with it with Holden. And I think there's just a lot there. I think what's additionally interesting about this book, and I, I'm reluctant to talk about the kind of like the social setting of the writing of the book because I don't want to minimize it and like make it, you know, an artifact. Oh, it's so 1950. But I think it, it, it's helpful to remember what, what stark contrast Holden's kind of like vision of the world is as compared to... Um, the United States that this book was published into. So it's serialized starting in 1947, right after World War II. Um, it's published in 1950, five years after World War II. And the United States is now like a superpower. After World War I, it's a superpower. The economy is absolutely booming. Church attendance in 1950 is the highest in recorded history in the United States recorded history by a pretty significant long shot. Um, like all the kind of like social indicators, marriage, fertility rates, all these sorts of things. Like they're really great. Like this should be the good life that Holden is entering. You know, like things are set up for him. His dad is wealthy. His dad wants him to go to an Ivy League school. Everything looks from the outside as if it's going really well and it's set up for a life of thriving, health, and comfort. And how remarkable that it's just that not only is it not that for Holden, but this book continues to be read at such an avid pace, which signals that like, well, maybe there's something else going on. This is, it seems like in some ways, maybe it's like more of a prophetic work than it probably gets credit for. Maybe it's more of a prophetic work than it is a gripe mm. or a complaint. Well, you know, like it, it's easy to read this. Sorry, David. No, I'll good, turn it over and say good. it's easy to read this as sort of like, oh man, Salinger, that curmudgeon yeah, who cynic. lived a solitary life way, you know, somewhere in New England and hit off by himself. And he just couldn't accept good things that were given to him. Or maybe he's like got his finger on something that's really plagued the American character since World War II or since, you know, like the 20th century. Maybe that's the reason why Catcher in the Rye is such a revered book. And maybe it's part of the reason also why it presses people's buttons so much. It does seem, you know, like a sort of sister book with um, The Great Gatsby in many ways, many of its... Yeah, right, right. Which he references. He does, yeah. Yeah. So um, you mentioned that everything seems like it's set up to be working out for Holden. And one of the things that you'll hear from people sometimes is, well, why, what does Holden have to be so upset about? So then the question comes, is it that the death of his brother is the thing that leads to all of these problems, which is, you you know, you, you can take that as like a, um, 
a suggestion that that's not a traumatic experience, which that's not what I mean, but that is what mm-hmm. the big, that's one of the big questions or big complaints about the book is, well, why is this kid like the way he is? What's the, because mo- he's like that from the beginning. We don't, we aren't privy to the transition to this sort of mm-hmm. um, confused, semi-cynical, you know, all the things that are going on, however we want to describe him. We, we're not privy to that alteration to him becoming that. So as you said, Tim, you're right. I mean, everything was set up, but then his brother dies. So is his brother, does that seem to be the thing that was the turning point for him? Or was there something, did that exacerbate it? Did that just bring it on faster? Um, How do you, what do you think about this, especially given your your training? I mean, how, how does this typically work? And then how do you think the book is, maybe there is no typical, but how do you think the book is expressing that? Well, I think the book is, looking at multiple levels of it. And I think Tim's right to point it to uh, society. I think that there is a, a very strong critique of American, you know, for, for its time modernity um, in this novel. And of course, because of who I am, I, I I tend to gravitate towards the psychological interpretations. And then it's helpful for me to have conversations with people who say there's more, you know, there's, there's another level here. There's the societal contemplation. Um, and which is why it's good to read in community. So I, I do think that the question of why Holden is the way he is, is a, it's an important it's it's an important thing to contemplate. And especially since we are reading this along with a lot of our listeners who are parents who are either in the teen years or heading into the teen years, I think that's another reason why this book can produce a lot of anxiety, right? Like I'm doing what Holden's parents did. So am I going to ruin my kid? What's going on with this child? And I want um, my kid to go yes, to Yale too. Right? Exactly. Right. Yes, right. I have hopes and dreams for him to live a a successful life in the capitalistic sense. We all kind of want our kids, you know, no matter how much we say we don't, uh, we do want our kids to be able to enter the marketplace and go to school and thrive and have friends and and not be jerks. Be comfortable. Yes. And, um, and know how to interact with other human beings and we're all kind of doing the best we can. And so one, one of the, and I think that that's really good writing on Salinger's part that he he offers the trauma of his brother's death. And that that's easy to latch on to. That's easy to say, oh, this is all grief. It's not. There's way more going on with this with this young man. And uh we can't simplify it. Salinger doesn't tell us and rightfully, because this book is, I think, supposed to create some anxiety in the average complacent reader of saying, what is wrong with this kid? And how Do how you, am I supposed to interpret that? I think that's one of the the purposes of the book is to kind of unsettle us to say in a prosperous world there's still trouble. We're still going to be troubled people. So you're saying that in part, what Salinger is doing by not kind of giving us the right answer, the thing that the other yeah, right mm-hmm. answer, the thing that got us there is that it it allows it to be more universal. Like we can see ourselves or our kids or whoever, like in it. Whereas if he had said, well, this is the reason he's this way. It's, this is the equation that led to this, that allows, unless you have that exact situation, then it allows it to be. Right. So remember when he's in the movies, he go, yeah. in this when he goes to the movie and he talks about what a phony movie it is, like the tripe that it is. And, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and he describes the whole plot. Is that a real movie by the way? 
It's got to be. I've wanted the same thing. Heidi. I didn't. It's got to be. I didn't do any research on that. Oh, the but, one he went to with Sally. Hmm. Yep. I think part of that, or no, when he goes to Radio no, City, the one he goes by himself. When he goes by himself. Yep. So. Oh, I was thinking but, of the Lunts, the stage play. Yeah, not the so show. That's real. Yes, but the movie, which I kind of think it probably is. But anyway, the uh, the point that I'm going to make about it is that one of the things Holden despises about that movie is that there's this uh, neat little bow tied at the end, that there's this crisis point, this catharsis point, and it solves everything. And then everybody ends up matched with the right person. And, and, and it's just all tied up with this neat little bow. And so readers who are looking for that to happen in Catcher in the Rye, as there's no, that doesn't happen. We are the whole, one of the whole points of this book is Life is really hard, even in a prosperous, booming society. And let's pay attention to that. So, and that's why one of the reasons why it's so hard to read. And one of the reasons why for some people are like, I love that because I kind of need somebody to just say it. And other people are like, well, this is just really depressing. So, and I think both reactions are valid because... This is a book that kind of contemplates what it means to be fallen, even though maybe Salinger wouldn't say it that way. We as Christians would. Hmm. So, trying to, we're, we're at an hour plus already. And there's some things we can tie that into what you're saying there. And and I'm wondering if we should wait till the till the ending because if some of it I don't feel like we have to. I think we should. Yeah, let's wait. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking out loud here. Do we need to? Yeah, yeah. Do we need to talk about? Um, actually, I wasn't really thinking out loud. I was just voicing the things that I was thinking about without voicing them. I was just uh, just saying <laughs> random words. For, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, hey, David, if we're gonna um segue to a close i want to do a little i'm going to give a little teaser um so one of the most famous assassinations in 20th century american history uh this book has a strong plays a strong role in that assassination Mm -hmm. and a lot of people don't know do you know about this heidi i remember talking about this in my high school yeah. class, but I don't remember the details. Yeah. Proceed. Well, I, I think I'll just wait. It'll, it's a tease. People have to wait until next week. And maybe like people get online and they'll Google Catcher in the Rye assassination. They can figure it out pretty easily. Well, there, was, but there was one assassination don't root, and then one don't attempted say it, assassination as well. And they both relate to Catcher in the Rye? Yeah, they both were motivated by related things related to the book. Oh, I think I know both what you're talking about. I was thinking, okay, anyway, we'll talk about it next week. That's a good tease. <laughs> and then it's also, it plays a key part in um, uh, a Mel Gibson movie, Conspiracy Theory. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, good movie. Um, okay, so do we need to talk now about the the scene where he says that he wants to run off with Sally or should we um, hold off on that? Should we, should we save that and let, I think we save it as like a segue into 
the is next week the final reading well then yeah the, and then the q a yeah yeah right i think we save it how did you what do you think sure, Heidi? sign with me i'm breezy yeah uh i i think that it's going to tie into things that that come up at the end so I, his i guess I, it's clear that he wants to leave that's the thing you know and and one of the things I've been thinking about is does he, does this just a kid that's got this sort of American sense of wanderlust and mm-hmm. adventure or is, you know, is it something different than that? And maybe that's something that we should um, pay attention to as we're reading. I guess that's the thing that I would say I'll be paying attention to as, as I read the the last third of this book again, do either of you have um, any final thoughts you want to say or anything you're going to be looking for as you read to the end of the book? I, I'm going to look for the meaning behind the title. We got like a little glimpse of it in the song Hmm. that um, Holden hears, but I have a feeling it's going to show up more strongly. That's what I'm going to look for. Hey, hit Phoebe, his relationship with his sister. Oh yeah. One of the reasons that I didn't, that I was, didn't just bring the Sally thing up is because I think that we need to talk about his relationship with women in general yes. <laughs> and Phoebe and Sally play into that. His mother and the, Jane, Jane, um, the prostitute. Uh, what's her name again? Does she have a name? Uh, Sunny. That's right. Which is, which is fake clearly. So, yeah. but he's, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, he, as they say in the business, <laughs> Oh, Heidi, that was so good. That was like so it's good. Oh man. Well, oh man, I'm gonna, that's gonna be ringing in my ears all day. That was so good. It's like a mic drop moment. But, um, okay, so those are things we're gonna be looking for. Heidi's gonna be looking for all the references to what things that people say in the biz, um, in the various businesses. Um, but as we say in this business, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Before we go, I want to remind people about our... Um, I mentioned last week about onlinegreatbooks.com because this is the week when they have their, their enrollment open. So if you want to go participate in what they're doing, make sure you check that out. Again, it's onlinegreatbooks.com. They have a, you know, a whole system that's meant to help you develop a regular habit of reading the great books. So they start with the earliest books. You know, you're going to read the early Greek philosophers you know, and before that, I guess, and then go up through more of the moderns. And so it's meant to be read... You know, there's a. It's all systematized. Uh, it's meant to help you uh, with you know, deadlines and community and all those kind of things. So if that's the sort of thing that you're looking for, if you're looking for that sort of community and those sort of uh, checkpoints and things like that, it's not for everybody. But if that's something you're looking for, then be sure to check them out. It's onlinegreatbooks.com, and you can um, use the code Cersei to get uh, 25% off. Or you can go to onlinegreatbooks.com slash Cersei slash C-I-R-C-E to get um, to get that discount as well. So, you know, if you're if that's something you're interested in, be sure to do that. Uh, and again, this is the week when their open enrollment is uh, is available. So I just wanted to remind people about that because what they're doing is pretty cool. Uh, you may have uh, you may have heard about them through um, the art of manliness or something like that. They've done interviews there. And then also this week we are running today uh, an interview that uh, actually Brandon LeBlanc did with their head, Scott, the guy that runs that program. And that's a pretty good interview. We, we let Brandon have some airtime and he, uh, he made the best of it. I'll tell you that. So if you're interested, uh, you can check out the Forma podcast where we, he has that interview um, with Scott Hambrick. Uh, but it's, again, it's a cool program. And I just wanted to make sure that you knew that that was a, possible, a possibility for you guys. So, all right. Heidi, Tim, is there anything else you want to add? 
No. I'm good, David. Okay. Make sure you are joining the conversation on the Facebook group. Again, Twitter and Instagram is at Close Reads Pods. The email address is Close Reads Podcast at gmail.com. And the Patreon is patreon.com slash Close Reads. Uh, next week, we will finish the book. And then the week after that, we will uh, answer your questions. So if you want to start posting questions, you can email them to us or we can uh, add them to the thread on the Facebook page. All right. With that, for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next week, happy reading. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.